This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast devoted to topics that relate to the inter- intersection of energy and financial sectors. This is Hill Baden co-hosting this week with Brian Doherty, and our guest experts are Justin Jacobs, Raul LeBlanc, and Hassan El Tori. Hey guys, and welcome. Hey Hill. Hey, thanks. Hey. So uh, this week, uh, just on Monday, Chevron announced that it would acquire Noble Energy in a five billion dollar all stock deal, valuing the uh, company Noble at about ten dollars and thirty eight cents a share. This announcement comes about 15 months, uh, Brian, after Chevron's $33 billion bid for uh, Anadarko, which was later bested by Occidental. Yeah, it's let's be honest, it's a pretty interesting deal and a different year, how how drastically different indeed, right? So Chevron with this, uh, back on the Anadarko deal, was placing about a 39% premium on those Anadarko shares. And that was just 15 months ago. Naturally, when we look at what this deal came out the other day, uh, we're looking at more of an 8% premium on these Noble shares. So a significant shift, I would say. And I guess Chevron here has been rewarded for its patience. Uh, because when we think about it, you know, this this deal for in many ways, kind of does the same thing Anadarko would in the sense that it does increase some of exposure to new plays. And very importantly, it increases some exposure to some new finds and some good monetization capabilities from a global gas scenario. So um, there's a lot to be said about the deal in general. And Hassan, I'm going to go to you first here. Before we get into the nitty-gritty details of exactly what the, the deal consisted of, what do you think that this signals for the upstream M&A market going forward? Do you do you think it does signal anything or it's just a one-off? Yeah, so in our opinion, we've seen a lot of the media out there say this is the beginning of a splurge in M&A activity across the industry. We really don't think so. We have not seen any material change in the governing dynamics in the market today that makes us believe that M&A activity is, go- is going to start. And here's here's why. There's still a lot of uncertainty in the market, especially when it comes to commodity prices. We still have a global pandemic that makes it very difficult to go out there and do due diligence on certain assets. Uh, more importantly, I think one factor that everybody hasn't really focused on is the capital markets remain relatively tepid, whether it's the debt markets or the equity markets out there to go and raise capital is still pretty difficult. So uh, we don't see any of these factors actually change materially to to justify that we're going to see a lot of M&A activity. Over and above that, the potential acquirers out there the bigger companies. Uh, One thing that we're seeing is a lot of them have a ton of debt on their books and a lot of companies' balance sheets aren't as strong as they are. And not only is the uh, acquirer's balance sheet usually not as as strong, but even the targets, a lot of companies out there have to justify when they buy a company assuming a lot of their debt. Uh, Again, you know, with capital markets being tight, refinancing that debt is going to be difficult. So none of these factors have have changed materially for us to get excited about the M&A market. Further, you got to look a little deeper into the Chevron Noble deal. Chevron's enterprise value is somewhere around, you know, 190, 200 billion, and they acquired 
Nobel for about 14 billion. So kind of like I think Raul said the, uh, the other day, think about it more as a bolt-on acquisition than a big company acquisition. I think that that tells you something. Noble is is not of the size of Anadarko. Anadarko was a lot bigger and they were able uh, to reward themselves by being patient and buy something a lot smaller for a lot cheaper. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe not more corporate M&A, let's say, but do we think asset-wise there, there could be a resurgence within the M&A market or we, we still think in general across both the asset and the corporate deals it's going to be a slow year? No, we think it's going to be a slow year. It's an interesting question when you think about assets. I mean, the amount of assets that are on the market are they're quite a bit, but the quality is very varied, right? And I would argue that there are very few opportunities out there with high quality, uh, high quality assets on the market to be sold. Because basically, if you have high quality assets, you probably want to hold on to them uh, to make it through this commodity downturn. You don't want to get rid of them. So we might see some asset acquisitions done via bankruptcies. We think that might happen. A a little bit, but by no means uh, do we expect a, a significant increase in activity there either. Uh, yeah, I was going to say. Uh, sorry, uh, go I'll ahead. Just to add to that, I, you mean th- that makes sense to me. Look, the bid ask has been pretty wide. Okay, uh, we know that because of all the volatility in the price, right? In general, volatility inhibits deals. So we've got that going on. At the same time, the suffering, particularly as oil prices bounce back to 40, the suffering has not been enough to drive people to a level of desperation to do forced deals yet. That may be coming, but not. Instead, now, I, I kind of agree with uh, Asan that waiting through the bankruptcy cycle to some degree, which will take a little time, but but is happening. And it's tough to get deals done. Uh, one question I had for the whole team, were you guys a little surprised about the price? Well, I wasn't too much because it was exactly almost spot on to our $11 valuation of Noble that we published a couple of months ago. So we were, we were right there on the price. I think uh, Wall Street was a lot more generous in its valuation of Noble. I think the median consensus price target was 13. So we were a lot closer, I think, to reality and to what Chevron paid. So I think it's pretty much spot on. Well, I know it's spot on, but did you think that the Noble would go for that. I mean, you know, people, when they get bought out, they're generally looking for pretty big premium. Good question. Good question. So Noble is trading 50, you know, their 52 week high is about 24, 25 bucks, something like that. Right. And they've been taken out at a significantly lower, lower price. The premium on this deal to the Friday closing price is is seven and a half percent. Right. It's really low. Uh, So, you know, we won't be too surprised if there's some rejection from it. But think about this. This is an all stock deal. You get access to uh, Chevron stock, which has pretty decent um, uh, dividend yield on it. Yeah. And you and you maintain all the upside to uh, to any share price appreciation that comes with Chevron, which is a bigger, more diversified company, better balance sheet, uh, better assets. So I think Noble shareholders are likely to approve the deal and go forward. Justin, as we, I mean, the, the all stock deal, you and I were talking earlier in the day, I mean, does that, even if there's not a wave of consolidation or M&A on the back of this, does all stock uh, seem to be a way forward, at least in the immediate term? Uh, with upstream transactions, which are otherwise, you know, somewhat hard to get through. Yeah, I think it's uh, a pretty attractive option in this environment for the reasons that Hassan uh, just mentioned. And also, you know, on the buyer side, uh, capital markets are pretty much closed. And, you know, it's tough for companies to go out and, and raise debt to, to, you know, kind of do these kind of deals. Um, so, yeah, you, using stock is, is an attractive op- option. Um, it's not necessarily going to be an option for all companies because you have, you have uh, Chevron issuing new shares to kind of 
uh, finance it in a way. Um, and that's with equity markets, you know, closed to a lot of EMPs. That's not necessarily an option, but for for a bigger company that can do it, uh, you know, I think it's an attractive way to structure uh, a deal like this, maybe. And what about for the Chevron shareholders? Uh, we've talked a little bit about what it means for Noble. What, what do we think? All signs point to yes, that everybody thinks this was Chevron got itself a great deal and this is good to go. Or is there any other thinking from, well, from the Chevron what side? Interests me, what interests me is, is, first of all, I don't think this deal was necessarily a surprise. After Chevron went after Anadarko, uh, if you looked across Wall Street and said, oh, this is the type of company they're looking for, everybody and their grandmother said, hey, you know, Noble looks a lot like a smaller version of Anadarko, right? Uh, big, uh, big gas project uh, internationally, uh, assets in the Permian and the DJ Basin, right? Uh, offshore presence. So I think it was a natural fit and, and, and not surprising. And from my understanding, it fills a, a niche in Chevron's portfolio in terms of that international gas slot, which gives them a near-term growth uh, on the international gas side. They've gotten very heavily into Australia. We know that. They've got several big assets, Australia. Uh, Kazakhstan is, a, of course, a, a gigantic asset. The Permian's a gigantic asset. Gives them a new area with some, some near-term growth that's kind of already paid for and is now just uh, kind of cash flowing that they can harvest. And were they hurting for growth already? I mean, they needed some growth, right? They needed something in the books that was going to give them that growth, I think. Yeah, yes. I definitely agree with what Raul is saying there. I mean, it, it, you can draw a pretty straight line between kind of the logic underlying Chevron acquisition of Anadorco with uh, with Noble, right? It's just a smaller version. Uh, bear in mind there are a couple of small uh, differences. If you look at Mozambique, right, they haven't reached FID yet on the Anadorco side, but with uh, with Noble, right, like Raul is saying, it's already cash paid for. Pretty much the assets are up and running. Uh, the other thing, which is, you know, Anadorco had a lot bigger Permian acreage position that I think Chevron would have liked to leverage at a lot at a lot higher oil price that doesn't exist today. Noble's acreage is probably about 90,000, which puts pretty much Anadarko's Permian at three times its size. So it won't be able to, le to leverage as much synergies in the Permian as it would have liked with Anadarko. And so what do we think, do we even want to tie a single theme or a single asset to what was really the driver behind this deal? We've talked, obviously, the DJ Basin is a big part of it, and the global gas, obviously, the Eastern Mediterranean piece is a big part of it. Was one more of a driver than the other, or you think it's a nice balance? Honestly, it's the global glass that really does the deal, at least in my in my view. I don't know what everybody else thinks, but you know, the 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 onshore U.S. doesn't will not move the needle that much for Chevron. Uh, not in terms of synergies or production growth, really doesn't do much. It's really exposure to the global gas that I think makes the makes the biggest difference. One thing I, I, we failed to mention: Noble used to have you know significant offshore deepwater Gulf of Mexico assets that would have made it you know almost identical to Anadarko. Though they sold those off a couple of years ago, but uh, uh, generally speaking, yeah, I don't, you know, it's it, this deal is all about the global gas, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, in terms of the U.S. assets, I would say, okay, um, the U.S. assets are, they're good. They're not great, though. You know, uh, they're, they're certainly their performance in Central Reeves is, is an area that has mixed results, and they have mixed results right in there with them. Uh, some fantastic wells, but also a number of poor wells. So it's not as if this is a, a, a premium asset in the Permian. And I think they paid a, a price that was not premium, so that's worth it. The DJ is a nice little asset. I continue to feel like the Wattenberg Field uh, in, in Weld County, Colorado is 
the the gift that keeps on giving. But it's not free. Um, you still have to get out there, spend money, drill. It has relatively high decline rates, and we have not seen an increase in well productivity in the in the Wattenberg play in the same way that we have in in other areas. Increases in efficiency, yes. Increases in actual you know reserves and extraction uh, per per lateral foot, no, really not for years. So it's a great resource and keeps giving, but it's not exactly, you know, uh, going to set the world on fire. Um, and I'll be interested to see whether they move that into harvest mode when I think, you know, from the certainly from the data we showed in our, our piece yesterday, Noble was not really focused on the Permian. Uh, they were much more focused in their activity level on drilling in the in the DJ Basin Wattenberg field. Yeah, and I don't, you know, we don't think I don't think we have to spend a lot of time talking about the Eaglesford because that really wasn't a great asset either for them. No, it's not. I mean, that's right next to Anadarko's position, right? It was uh, 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 right there. And that actually that was a great asset. Okay, yeah, it no longer is. It's it's a little long in the tooth. I think you could say the same thing with their Utica uh, uh, position, which was okay. Uh, Again, a set of solid assets, but nothing really to uh, set the world on fire. Do you think they try to sell those uh, Eagle Ford assets or, or any of those? I would not be surprised uh, if they managed to, if they decided to sell those. I just think they're relatively marginal and don't have any synergies, right, with uh, with that. Either that or they just harvest them. Either way, I, I think they try to minimize it as a as a, a sink for capital or, or an area that, um, you know, uh, takes up a lot of uh, manpower, right, uh, in their portfolio. Uh, in this price environment, though, I imagine that they're not going to be too quick to hive off anything frantically. Right. Well, that's the thing about Chevron. You don't have to do anything, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, you're not in the same position as, say, say an Oxy that just did a, a very big deal and then the, the you know, to, floor yeah. falls away from underneath it. Now, do you think, is there anything that, I mean, naturally this is, a big enough purchase for them to have come through with in 2020. But do you think that this points to a strategy with Chevron where there might be some other bolt-ons, be they assets maybe more than another corporate, for instance? But is there anything else that you think would round out Chevron's portfolio even more, given that this points to a bit of a direction for them? Yeah, I mean, I can make a quick comment on that. Uh, basically, you know, Chevron was on the prowl for a deal. We all know that, it, partly because it's got a really strong balance sheet. Obviously, they take on a little bit of debt with Noble, but nothing too big. But keep in mind, right, they went after a smaller company on the cheap that doesn't really impact or change the portfolio drastically, right? So they played it safe in this environment. I ex- I don't expect them to do another deal for at least 12 to 24 months, right? It, you know, they could have gone out after a uh, bigger fish, but they decided to go for a smaller company, there's there's good reason behind that. I think that tells you a lot about the risk-reward profile that they're trying to take. And I know you've already said that you think it's going to be a slower year, but do you think there are actually even any majors or NOCs or anybody to that effect that, that might be on the prowl a little bit? Uh, you know, we were just looking at that and when, and now report, one thing we wanted to highlight is putting on everybody's kind of debt to cap and leverage ratios just to show, right? And pretty much almost everybody has quite a bit of debt on their books. So keep that in mind and any, that's a hindrance to any acquisition. The closest company in terms of leverage metrics to Chevron is Exxon, but Exxon is running significant cash flow deficits this year. So kind of unlikely that they go ahead and do an acquisition either. Do you think and though, by the way, you can bet you can bet that uh, you know the Chevron team. Of course, they look at all opportunities, but you can bet they took a look at Oxy 
right? Uh, because uh, yeah. as we've been noting, you know, with water cooler around all offices in Houston, the water cooler talk has been, yeah, Chevron's going to come back and buy Oxy for less than Oxy, Oxy paid for Anadarko. Uh, you know, it didn't happen, uh, but obviously, uh, they, they, I'm sure they they took a look at that. Yeah, they probably said, you know what, with all that debt, I'm all right. Thanks. <laughs> they got a Warren Buffett deal in yeah. there that they probably didn't want any part of. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I mean, I might be a little bit biased because, as you all know, and and maybe lots of the listeners already know, I, I tend to live mostly within the natural gas world, but I feel like a lot of the big deals have been coming out as of late, do have a very big gas component to them. Is that fair? Do we think this is at least, you know, if we're trying to look at where there might be some trends or some tipping points here, do we think that it looks like gas is falling increasingly into favor, particularly with these NOCs and majors, or is it, these are just isolated events? Uh, I, I don't know, Brian. It, it, it's a good point. I mean, we've got this scenario laid out. And as we've been presenting that to, to people, I think people have been genuinely interested in it. Yeah. I don't think that it's got enough of a consensus to drive any kind of deal at this point. So it could be that, you know, these companies, and, and by the way, this applies to, to, to the chess peaks uh, of the world, right? Um, and, and other companies that, you know, have been, been having some difficulties uh, or, or the oxys, if there is gas uplift, Chevron will be very happy that they they got this right because between the Eagleford and the Utica and even that that permanent position uh, and the DJ, they have relatively decent gas exposure to this right. So if our you know forecast turns out to be on the right side of of reality, then it could be a really nice option value. Were they thinking option value? They might have been thinking option value. Okay, but I don't. I think the gas market has been so consistently difficult for so long that it'd be very hard to convince a uh, a management team, an executive management team, to take a big chance. Uh, no, this wouldn't be a big chance, but to take a chance on a gas-oriented asset. I think there are there is some money out there is going for that and and buying into this, but I don't think it happens at this corporate M and A level for a five billion dollar transaction. That's that's my. You think theory. here in North America, but what is that North America focused? You think, or what about global yeah. LNG? Uh, uh, again, I think most of this is not LNG. By the way, it's it's sold mm-hmm. at a great price. By the way, into the. Uh, into the Israeli domestic market, right? So I don't know again that somebody's taking a chance on on LNG at this point, like like Shell did on on BG, right at mm-hmm. the bottom of the last one. Or, I don't know anyway. Well, Anadarko has Mozambique, which would be LNG. Yes, but right. Interesting. But not um, in the post-COVID context. Yeah, not exactly. I guess that's a that's a very important point to to lay out here is that obviously one of these deals was done pre-COVID and one of them was done post, which are two very different, very different worlds. Um, When we, so when we think of what could be appealing out there, if people are prowling, anything come to mind? Is it, if it, if it's not gas, do we think that there are, there's some appeal in some sort of oil theme that people might be going for, whether it's onshore North America or deep water or looking to more emerging opportunities globally? Anything coming out, maybe not specific to this deal. I, I, I imagine I'm getting a lot of blank faces and nobody's really jumping on this as I keep babbling through the statement. So maybe nobody has anything well, to highlight. 
<laughs> which which makes this question just it's a bit of a another one. Bit of a sucker's game. I've never been seen anybody or heard of anybody that was really able to predict him. You can throw out a whole bunch of names, but <laughs> I find deals to be so idiosyncratic that right, it's like, well, this happened and this five things happened, and these two management teams thought it was a good idea. It's very difficult to predict. Are there more likely combinations? Absolutely. But to be able to to predict, you know, specific combinations, I think is is pretty difficult. Uh, so I tend to shy away from that. Uh, although if you do it and it happens, you look good. But just <laughs> what about what about even a theme though? Like, do you think there's uh, there's somebody who if 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 I you're up the there and looking, you want to look deep water? Part, do you want to look? For my part, I think the next theme is a, a wave of uh, mergers of equals from companies that really need uh, that are in uh, difficult financial condition and good operational condition and just try to get together to uh, lower the cost of capital, create a bigger enterprise. I, th I don't think that happens for another two quarters as we move through the distress process. That would be my if, if, if a merger of equals uh, of two kind of struggling companies, how do they, how do they make that happen? Uh, I mean, is there no premium? No premium. Uh, all stock again? Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. You got to do stock for stock. If you're distressed, you don't want to. You know, you don't want one company doing it. So you 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 have one company, yeah, in a, a low premium stock for stock deal, and then you take it, and then you try dramatically to reduce your cost. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, we did some research and looking at the different peer groups and the different sizes of both acquisitions and targets. And what you'll see is that the smaller guys are all trying to get bigger, right? Because bigger gives you access to capital that gives you cheaper access to debt. It's going to help with your uh, with your shareholders. So I think if it, like Raul is saying, if anything were to happen, we think merger of equals and especially could start off, you know, on the smaller end of, of company size. So something to keep to keep a look at, but we don't think anything's imminent for sure. How about explorationists? That I mean, th th this is the second independent explorer to, to, to get gobbled up, you know, Anadarko being the other one. There's a couple others, you know, Tullo and a few others, you know, exploration as a business is, you know, has a different value in the type of uh, kind of fossil fuel constrained world that we're moving into. I mean, is there, do some of these majors want to expand their uh, explorationist capability with, with um, you know, some acquisitions of explorers or, or would explorers merge in a way that two unconventional specialists merge? Any thoughts I, I, on that? You know, if I if I can comment on that or take a stab on that, I'll I'll tell you. That, you know, I don't think you know Chevron acquired Noble for its exploration capabilities. I think it would have been nice to have in a totally different commodity environment. But in today's world, I don't think there's a lot of you know added benefit to to having that. So I'm I'm not sure that's going to be a theme that sparks M and A going forward. I don't know if that answers your question or anybody else wants to chime in on that. Yeah, I would say if you're looking at you know some of the European majors who are pivoting kind of away from long-term oil and gas prospects. I think they're not going to be going after some of these explorers as well. If you look at Tello, you know, somebody like Shell or Total might have been a kind of obvious suitor, but uh, you know, I think they're turning a bit away from, from that business. Um, they might have other, other assets that are attractive, but if you're looking at more frontier kind of, you know, exploration plays, I think it's tough given, you know, the uncertain outlook over demand long term and uh, you know oil prices and everything. So you know I think it's it's a tough market for those guys. So more likely mergers of equals among some of the North America shale 
specialists than you know some of the other independents. I think that's fair. Yeah. And then when we're looking at you know some of the shale, you know th this, w will the majors um, continue to grow their presence in the Permian? Is this do do we see that, that a lot of the focus of the Anadarko deal in particular was Oxy and, and you know Chevron its initial bid? Yeah, uh, growing the Permian that there, you know, Noble has a, a I suppose a small Permian position, not quite as substantial. Yeah, yeah it's a good question, Hill. Uh, I, I think do the the question really revolves around: Do the majors currently have enough acreage and undrilled opportunity set to achieve the ambitions that they have set out for this? So, number one, I think that you know the while we always talk about oh they got their balance sheets, they're going to hit their targets. The whole COVID experience is is a bit of a different from a uh, you know, a cycle that goes down to 45 for, you know, a little while and comes back, right? And so I think that they may pull in their horns just a little bit, which means that their current existing inventory goes further, okay, and may do the job. I've been saying for a while that I thought that Exxon probably needed more acreage to fully realize its ambitions. That may not be the case. And given that they may also be looking toward uh, a deleveraging, you know, Hassan noted the the um, fairly significant leverage, not so much for for Exxon or and certainly not for ConocoPhillips, um, but for some of the other super majors, right? The European super majors have a little bit heavier debt load, and so the notion of them taking on something to ramp that up and and accelerate activities in the Permian, I think, is a little bit less likely now, or rather, other priorities may have risen uh, up up the uh, up the pecking order here. Uh, uh, due to you know global events in the meantime, and so what it does mean is that I think the uh, maybe independence that may be looking for suitors um, it gets a little bit tougher uh, to to find those very large integrated companies that may be willing to snap up a uh, an acreage position. Yeah, if you look at Exxon in particular, they're under a lot of pressure from shareholders to kind of kind of rein in spending and. Uh, mm -hmm. Keep an eye on the balance sheet because they tried to, you know, spend through this down cycle. And they That's got, right. you know, they got pretty extended. Um, so yeah, it doesn't mean they can't Shell do a deal. But... They they canceled their dividends, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it doesn't mean they can't do a deal, but you know, they're going to have to put forward a pretty strong case to shareholders to, uh, to you know, to pull something off like that. Yeah. It's a good point, Justin. And 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 the only way probably to do that is to buy something that already has lots of cash flow. Well, yeah. frankly, you know, that's not why you want to buy something in the Permian these days, right? Yeah. Necessarily. Oxy was was a, a, a good choice in that, uh, or Andarka was a good choice actually in that regard because it did have, you know, more cash flow, I think, uh, th th than some others. And Oxy's probably reaping the benefits of that now. But in general, I mean, we typically expect when majors pick up more positions, particularly in the onshore, they pursue typically lower growth rates as a whole. So in general, this should be the more majors get involved in the onshore plays, we can expect slightly slower growth to come out of those. Is that fair? Although I guess we were expecting that anyways, because of the commodity yeah. environment and just general behavior. So this doesn't, this increased, increased presence of majors maybe isn't making as much of an impact as it would have. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Ago. I always felt like People say, oh, the majors are getting in. Everything's going to accelerate now. And to some degree, they do have the balance sheets to, to go through, you know, many cycles, right? And you have seen those, but Exxon in particular, but also Chevron really ramp up in the last, last little while. However, I, I do believe that consolidation in general 
um, uh, particularly if it's a synergy-related uh, kind of deal, tends to slow activity, right? And not just for the this, the you know the the period in which the two companies are trying to merge, but often you're looking to the high grade your portfolio and maybe spend a little bit less. And I think that's certainly the case in the current environment. So I think these deals that happen result in lower overall capex, uh, better capex probably. Um, and and I think Oxy is an extreme example of that, right? I mean they bought it and then they cut their they cut their capex really in half, and you know they're drilling the best of the best. Okay, and I think Chevron will do the will do the same thing here and, and result in overall lower growth and lower capex. On the I I don't know if anybody wants to comment on the more global side. Do we think that Chevron's experience though might actually accelerate you know some of the Eastern Mediterranean opportunities that that are in this portfolio now just because they have some capabilities there. So we might have more slowing in, in some of these plays, particularly on the North American onshore side of things, but maybe globally, it actually provides some support and acceleration. Uh, I think that's a really good point. I mean, there, there's no doubt, right, that Noble didn't have the LNG experience if that was going to be the way that the East Mediterranean is going to be monetized. There are several options on the table, including pipelines, including uh, utilizing under uh, underutilized capacity in Egypt's LNG facility. So there are multiple options. But let's say if they go the LNG route or really anything else, just given the size of Chevron's uh, balance sheet and its financial expert, its expert, its technical expertise, there's no doubt that they will be able to execute, I think, in a more efficient, more robust manner than Noble could, could uh, ever could. I mean, following up on that, just even managing the above ground risk that are inherent uh -huh. in the Middle East generally, right, and not just between, you know, uh, Middle Eastern countries, but even looking at Turkey, Cyprus, for example, and the maritime border dispute there, a company the size of Chevron can withstand kind of some of these above ground risk shocks if they were to materialize. Noble would have, I think, a lot more difficulty uh, managing something like that. So definitely Chevron is better equipped. Interesting. Um, I uh, have, I think I actually know the answer to this, but I am going to put each of you on the spot. I, I'm scared that we're all going to end up on one side of this. Maybe I'll just take the contrarian view just because. But um, I thought we'd play a little bit of M&A over under. So as we're all aware, the deal count in Q1, Q2 was record low. So let's just take that off the table as far as consideration. But as we look to Q3 and Q4, I'm going to leave a little bit of context. The five-year Q3, Q4 combo of deal count average was 133. The maximum, which happened in 2016, was 164. And the fewest deals in the back half of the year done was 2019, and it was 91. I want each of you to say over under on whether or not we think we're hitting a 91 deal count on the back half of this year, which would be the lowest level, nine, which was last year as well. Um, do we think we're coming in below that, or do we think we might inch eke out above it? An asset deal, it could be asset deal. Um, it includes assets and corporates, of course. So 91. I'd say under. Under? Mm -hmm. Okay. Raul? Yeah, I'm going to have to go under. I want to be contrarian. I, I like it, <laughs> but I don't know. That just seems unlikely. Yeah, predictably um, under. It's pretty tough out there. Uh, Hill, come on. You got to give me one. <laughs> I'm trying to see how, I mean, even, you know, on the, on the call yesterday, you know, the Chevron CEO was talking about how it's a bad time to be selling assets. So whether whether an asset-only deal or, a, you know, the, a takeover, it's hard to see 92 deals over the next six months. How about this? Hold on. 
What if you add deals and bankruptcies? Yeah, I was going to say things that fall out of bankruptcies, potentially. Then I'm taking the over. (laughs) Yeah, I'll take the over if if you include bankruptcies. And you know what? That that makes for an equally interesting conversation that we can revisit maybe at the end of Q4 or Q1 2021. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, that's... uh, Maybe as good a place as any to to, to end the uh, to end the podcast here. Uh, thank you all for, uh, for for joining us on relatively short notice. We've only had about uh, 24 hours to digest the deal, and I know Hassan, you were consumed yesterday putting together, you know, organizing the conversation to release a note to clients on all of this, uh, which is you know a great turnaround and pretty well received all around the board. So so thank you all, and we will be back uh, with another topic soon. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks. guys. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.